Hey guys, welcome to this week's roundup. Got a few cool things to talk about, and at the end I have Firebrand X on, talking about his different Framemeister profiles, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, but before we jump into the news, I just want to say a huge thank you to my buddy Jordan from Japan. Um, I was having a hard time finding certain Japanese-only consoles, and on eBay the shipping was $60 per console, and it would take over a month to arrive, which I just, I don't even know how you could do something like that. But Jordan helped me track down everything I need, and now I can finally finish a lot of the testing I've been working on. So huge thank you to him. Um, the shipping was reasonable, and he got it to me in like three days, which is just kind of mind-blowing still. It's coming from the other side of the planet. But big thank you to him, and you guys will see the results of that in some of the upcoming episodes within the next few months once the testing's done. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited to start working on that, and I guess let's get on with the news. The game Mighty No. 9 was released last week, and I guess the rollout wasn't very smooth, which kind of just was uh, one extra kick in the butt after a whole year of delays. So, for people that don't know the story, just a, a very quick rundown. The creator of Mega Man, about three years ago, announced what he called the spiritual successor to the Mega Man series. He wanted to create a new type of Mega Man and call it Mighty No. 9, and it would basically be Mega Man, but for modern consoles and the Kickstarter was funded pretty much immediately, but then there's just been a ton of delays. And I think the worst one was the first delay, they said, released April 2015, and like the last day of April, they said, oh, it's, it's another six months delay. So it actually turned out to be over a year delay, but that just kind of, you know, that's never a good thing to do to people that funded a project, you know, that on the release date pretty much tell them that it's delayed a year. So after all that, when the rollout happened last week, People were complaining that their download codes weren't working, or that it wasn't released on all systems at the same time, which I'm sure that in itself was frustrating, but if you add all the other delays to it as well, you know, I, I'm sure that just pissed a lot of people off. And the reviews themselves were mixed. Some people thought the game was kind of mediocre, and I haven't played it myself yet, I'm kind of looking forward to it, and I want to keep an open mind, I don't want to go in there with a negative view of it, so maybe I'll wait a little while before playing. But I guess this is just like a a pretty stark reminder that when you fund a Kickstarter project like this, you're funding an idea. So there's been tons of Indiegogo and Kickstarter campaigns I've seen where the product's ready to go, they just need to pay for manufacturing. Great, awesome. Those all, almost always work out fine. And I've funded a lot of other stuff like this that was great too. But then you get the ones like 90s Arcade Racer, which started three and a half years ago, and there's just no updates on it anymore. They've like abandoned the project. They had a couple of weird, you know, oh, we're getting this company in, we have different AI for the cars, and then their last update was over six months ago. So I, I hope this doesn't uh, hurt any future software Kickstarter projects because of the, the negativity about it, and I hope the game itself is pretty good. And if anybody's played it, please uh, leave your thoughts in the comments. I'd love to hear what people think. The Super Nintendo game BS Zelda was released last week with an MSU1 audio patch. Now that's a lot of acronyms, so let me try to run down what exactly this is and why this is so important to talk about. So, BS uh, games, or Broadcast Satellaview, or Satellite, were games that were only available in Japan on the Super Nintendo through a satellite attachment. So, the thought of that today, playing a game online, it's not very impressive. You do it on your cell phone, you can do it on anything. But this is in the 90s in Japan. You're basically hooking up like your DirecTV satellite to your Super Nintendo. And you get to download and play games. 
in some games, like this one, um, are heavily modified. So this one was like a redone version of the original NES Legend of Zelda, but smaller, and each week you would be able to play a different map, and you'd have a time limit, and uh, there would be live actors, um, pre-recorded obviously, but streaming along to the satellite, so if you have a one-hour limit to beat it, you have somebody talking to you and giving you tips for that hour. So this game's been playable on ROM carts or emulators for a while now, and instead of somebody talking to you, it just has text printed on screen that would come up. So if it says, you know, press select to open the menu, you'd have something on the bottom of the screen that just types that out. So in comes the MSU Audio patch. MSU Audio is a fake chip created by a Super Nintendo emulator maker. So uh, BYUU is the guy who makes all the, the Hygen emulator, and he's uh, kind of famous in the Super Nintendo emulator scene because he's just kind of reverse engineered a lot of the chips, done a lot of great work. And this one project basically brings CD audio to a SNES. So a good analogy would be, imagine instead of a Sega CD, there was a Super Nintendo CD, but no loading times. Um, and I've played a ton of the MSU audio patches. Uh, my favorite so far was Zelda Link to the Past that had the orchestral soundtrack instead of the regular one. So that was pretty badass to be actually be playing, you know, Zelda with an orchestra behind it. But um, this one takes the original broadcast and they had it translated into English as well. Um, and then you could play it throughout the hour as if you were sitting there at your satellite in Japan back in the 90s playing it. So you get to experience it the true way it was meant to be experienced. And you could do this on real hardware if you have an SD to SNES ROM cart. Um, if you don't have one, you could just use an emulator that supports MSU1, but I think it's pretty incredible that I get to take my ROM cart, you know, put this game on it, sit down on my TV, and then just play something that, you know, nobody outside of Japan in the 90s would have been able to experience it. So I think it's pretty cool. Um, I'll have links to where you could download and make the ROMs yourself. Or as always, you could try to find Smoke, My uh, Smoke Monsters ROM packs, um, which are phenomenal. They have everything you could ever need. Just get a really big SD card because he has everything on there. So highly recommend both the game, the ROM pack, and all MSU audio stuff. So I hope I kept that short enough, and I hope everybody's excited, as excited as I am about playing it. Speaking of ROMs and ROM patches, Kerr Avon on the Crix forums has started a thread with links to all of the patched N64 games. So this is really helpful for people that just want to go out and pick out one of the games that they want to play. Um, the Smoke Monster ROM packs, I think, have all of these in, but maybe sometimes you just need one, or you just don't have a big enough um, SD card for everything. But these range from games that require patches to be on N64 EverDrive, all the way to games like they have the Zelda Master Quests that were the remake of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask on GameCube. I'm pretty sure people reverse engineered that to go back onto an N64 through a ROM cart. So it's cool stuff, and anybody that has an EverDrive 64 should probably bookmark this and just keep it as a reference. I think Kerr Avon said he's going to keep the first post current, so everything you need should already be in there. Uh, obviously, links uh, in the description for anybody that needs it. I found something kind of neat on eBay this week. Somebody had listed a Philips CDI controller adapter. So this would allow you to play any older PC-style gamepad on your Philips CDI. 
Um, and I know most people are probably thinking, oh, who cares? It's the CDI. It sucks anyway, which you're right. But it is important that we preserve all of these consoles, even the bad ones, because sometimes playing the bad ones just reminds you how good the good ones were. Um, and it's just a part of history. But a big problem with the CDI, besides the fact that it sucks, is that the controllers can go for almost $100 on eBay. So having a cheap controller adapter would be really helpful, and it would at least allow people who own the system or can pick one up cheap to just play it and try it. Um, I emailed the seller and asked if he'd be able to take pictures, and he said he was kind of busy. The guy was super nice, but he did kind of hint like, hey, if you want to take pictures of the inside, why don't you buy it? He didn't say it. He was super nice about everything, but... Um, if anybody's out there that thinks they could re, uh, reverse engineer the circuit, um, I'll leave the link up to it. That would be kind of cool if you could share that with us. Um, I really wouldn't know how to do that, and uh, the people that I do, I wouldn't want to bother with them because I already have them working on a million other projects. Um, the only thing I will mention is when Sean Green, the creator of the Bliss Box, which is the box that does all it does is controller adapting, so this guy is an expert at this, um, he mentioned that the CDI itself has inherent controller lag, so it, it wasn't. It was. He basically listed technical reasons why it was a terrible console as well. So I'm sure even with this controller adapter, it's going to add even more lag to the controllers that were already there. So just thought it was neat. Thought I might want to share it. And if uh, any anybody that wants to try to reverse engineer this and have a CDI adapter to sell. The, I'm sure you'd actually be able to sell a bunch, and it would be appreciated. But either way, I'll leave the link so you guys can check it out. It's kind of neat. Crix announced more details on his GBA EverDrive. I'll leave the exact specs in the description, but so far it's $99 and up for pre-order on July 1st from Stone Age Gamer. No word on the pricing from Crix store directly, so that might be cheaper. Uh, and it supports all save types with no patching required. So it really will just be a dump all the ROMs on one micro SD card and go solution, which is pretty cool. Um, also, it only plays GBA games, not Game Boy or Game Boy Color, which I believe is, uh, it's a physical limitation of it. He would have to build in a physical switch and it would have raised a lot of cost. Um, I, I really don't mind having one of each, especially because it'll fit nicer inside the, the cart rather than having, you know, one bigger one that sticks out like it's full Game Boy sized. But I'll post everything else in the description, and um, if there's, as soon as the pre-order goes live on anybody's site, I'll tweet about it so everybody could jump on it and make sure to get the first run. Next up is the Q&A, but first I just wanted to thank everybody that's been participating. We've gotten a bunch of really cool questions, but also a bunch of really amazing answers. People that have taken the time to write long, technical, detailed answers to things, and I feel like the Q&A stuff has really sparked a lot of discussions on the show itself. So um, thanks to everybody, um, and please keep doing it. I uh, really appreciate it, and uh, I guess I'll move on to the first question. A few weeks ago, somebody had asked about wavy lines on the screen during gameplay, and I had ha explained how I had the same problem with my Nintendo Wii, um, and I never really figured out why it happened, it just kind of went away after a while. Uh, well, YouTube user Outer Space Base has posted a pretty detailed response on what it could be, and he left a couple of pretty good tips, like um, make sure they're both plugged into the same wall outlet, and uh, try to use a isolation transformer, and he also gave a tip on uh, how to find cheaper ones, not the home theater ones that'll work just as well. So thank you very much for that. Um, I also had been researching this separately for myself because I was having a problem with the band where sometimes I would plug in my tube amp to a wall 
and it would just be a loud, loud buzz coming out of it. And then other times I would plug it in and it wouldn't happen at all. So somebody had recommended I look into a sine wave UPS, which are fairly cheap considering. You can get them for under 300 on Amazon. Um, whereas if you try to go for you know one of the, the home theater ones, they're in the thousands. So um, Outer Space Base, if you want to chime in on that and see what you think about the sine wave. Uh, and how you got your nickname. Is it a reference to Outbound by Stu Hamm? If you're a bass player? Yeah. Next, Lou Billy asked about the differences between the Sony RGB monitors. So specifically between the PVM, BVM, and GVM. Um, to be honest, I'd never heard of the GVMs before your question. Uh, I had to look it up. And based on the pictures that I saw, they seemed like they were the older revision. So if the, there's not much wear and tear on it, it'll probably still look good and it will accept 15 kilohertz RGB. Obviously look up your specific model just to make sure before buying. But generally you'll probably run into PVM or BVM. Um, and the difference is, without going into like crazy details, or basically if when they were new, the BVMs were better. They were four times the price, but they were higher quality, more lines on the screen, um, but the PVMs are still excellent and way, way better than any arcade monitor or CRT. Um, but nowadays, because there's so much use on these, on many of these, you really need to see it in person to truly know the difference. So I have a, a PVM that has barely any hours of use on it that looks amazing. And I have a friend that has a BVM that it is the model that was rated one of the best CRTs, if not the best ever made. And it doesn't look as good. And it's not because the monitor isn't as good. It's just because of the wear and tear. So I'm sure if both had a full cap replacement and had a calibration, now that BVM would probably go back to being way better. Um, so if I guess if, you're, if you have the ability to change the caps out, which if you don't, don't try it yourself. Because if you get zapped with power in a tube, you will die. So don't mess with opening up a tube TV unless you know what you're doing. But... Uh, if if you have that ability, I would go for a BVM, have it shipped to you, do a cap replacement, do a calibration, and you'll probably be happy. But if not, you really just need to see it in person and kind of roll the dice. I know that's not what you want to hear, especially if you have it shipped. And uh, you said you live in Australia, so that's expensive shipping. But I, I don't know. Without seeing it in person, it's really hard to tell. So I hope I answered your question. I'm sorry I didn't have easier or better news for you. John Malia asked about using a Framemeister in North America since it came from Japan and the J Japanese power is 100 volts versus North America's 120. Steve from HD Retrovision actually jumped in and responded to this one uh, in that although the Framemeister used to ship with only a Japan-only 100 volt adapter, it now ships with a universal one. I actually checked the one I'm borrowing and it does have a universal one and it was purchased recently. Um, and if you have a Framemeister with the 100 volt, or if you buy a used one that might have it, you can get a converter. Or uh, a tip that Steve pointed out was that you could use a Sony PSP AC adapter. And he said he tested it, and it's the same voltage, current, polarity, and plug size as the Framemeister. Um, and just make sure to get the official Sony one, no knockoffs. So, uh, good question, good tip, um, and thanks for jumping in, Steve. Stee also chimed in on a conversation from last week about storing consoles when not in use. Um, his response was detailed and freaking awesome, so if anybody's into it, the detailed response, I'll definitely leave a link to it. But just a, a super short summary, um, there's nothing crazy you have to worry about, about storing your systems from a power perspective. 
Um, the idea of flicking the power switch off or unplugging it from the wall is probably good practice, uh, just if nothing else for phantom power. Um, and or you could uh, get one of the updated retro DC power supplies, which are more efficient. Uh, and also, when you unplug your console, um, you don't need to discharge it. Those capacitors will discharge on their own. Um, so the only time that you would definitely want to do that is like if you're going to work on a console, unplug the power, then flick the power switch on and off just to, or leave it on until the light goes off so you know you fully discharged it. That way you don't short anything. But um, thanks again, Steve, for jumping in on those. Always appreciate the, the technical help because I know just enough to be dangerous, but not enough to, to fully answer the questions. So th thanks, both of you guys. Next, Mr. Harumph2. <laughs> Sorry, that's a pretty funny name. Um, Mr. Harumph2 asked, uh, I, was, I mentioned seeing weird scanline patterns when using the FrameMeister. Um, I probably just worded that wrong. Um, I was trying to be as clear as I could, but with so many similar terms, 4X, 5X, 4K, OSSC, bunch of acronyms and letters and numbers, um, I, I probably just said the wrong thing. Um, but basically, FrameMeister's 4X scaling with the scanlines look great. Um, the 5X doesn't really line up as well. I didn't think they looked bad, but it didn't look as good. And with the OSSC in line triple mode, um, I thought the scan lines were perfect, but that's also on Wes's 4K TV that wasn't on a 1080p TV. So the OSSC tripled to 240p, and then that was then multiplied directly into 4K, which is why everything stayed the same and lined up properly. Whereas uh, the 5x scaling was kind of stretching things past where the TV goes, so the scan lines kind of didn't line up. So, um, but I guess that was a really long way of saying I'm sorry for wording it wrong. And if you're really into scan lines, try it with the 5x scaling, but you're probably going to uh, prefer it with the 4x on the FrameMeister. And the last question, CoderKind3 said it wasn't quite clear why I thought the FrameMeister was overall better than the OSSC. Um, I want to answer your question directly, and then I want to talk more about this uh, before I move on to the interview with Firebrand X, because it's exactly what we've been working on. So just to, to directly answer your question, um, in order to use the OSSC, you have to get on a waiting list, then you have to hope that the line triple mode works with your TV, and if not, you're using 480p mode. The FrameMeister is available right now, today. Everything you need for it, and it will work on any TV with an HDMI input, period. So that's why overall I'm still saying if anybody just wants a solution right now, the FrameMeister, um, as the OSSC gets updated, I might change my mind on that. But uh, good question, sorry that wasn't clear. Um, and I think I'd like to talk next about exactly where we're at with the scalar testing. So throughout the past week, I've continued working on the upscaler comparison page. Um, I figured I would skip to the end and tell you the results of the lag tests and then kind of tell you how I got there because anybody that wants to do this is going to run into the same problems I did. Uh, and then I'm just going to explain what's coming next. So to start, the lag test results were that the combination of the OSSC and DVDO VP50 scaler God, there's a lot of acronyms in here. <laughs> um, the combination between the OSSC and the VP50 are is about one frame of lag or less, which is less than the FrameMeister, which was pretty cool. So you have OSSC by itself, about nothing. Combine that with the VP50, one or less, 
You have the Frame Meister that's 1 to 1.5. And then you have any of the other generic scalers, which I tested just for fun, where you get four to five frames of lag, which is just ridiculous, because then if you put that on a crappy TV, you can get nine frames of lag, which is just unplayable. So that was pretty cool to finally get those results. How I got the VPU50 working was a royal pain in the ass, and I said that last week, but it just it kept getting worse. So I got the correct serial cable, uh, and then I got a PC with a serial port on it, and then I needed the exact correct version of the software, and then you need to follow the update instructions to the T. You can't miss one checkbox or it'll just fail. When I finally get all that done, the upgrade itself took 40 minutes. I guess running through a slow serial cable slowed it down pretty bad, but 40 minutes just for the firmware update. And then once I actually you know, got it updated to the latest firmware, and found the setting that you could turn off to get rid of the lag called cadence detection. So I got all that set up, plugged in my Super Nintendo, and then turned off HDCP, turned off cadence detection, turn on the Super Nintendo, screen goes black. So double check everything again, everything's off, Try tried it with everything off, same thing, everything's set, turned on the OSSC, okay, everything's set, turn on the Super Nintendo, goes off. So then I brought it from my plasma TV to my CRT that accepts 720p HDMI. Um, same thing, but in, instead of going black, the screen kind of went a little crazy, but you could still see the menu of the OSSC good enough. So I was actually able to go through and check the settings. You have to turn cadence detection off after the console is powered on, which is kind of crazy. Um, so I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have a display that stayed on after doing this. Uh, or maybe if I had just waited long enough, it would have resynced after a minute. But, um, so that's a big, huge roadblock for anybody who tries to do this themselves. Um, luckily, after you turn it off, then it kind of just, the setting remembers that, and you don't have to worry about it again, just through that HDMI input, though. So forever now, I'll have to leave it plugged into HDMI 1 of the scaler. But, uh, and then... Once it was actually done, you know, I did the lag testing, I checked it out on my plasma, and I did think it looked great. Um, but I'm not the expert on that, so I do have a decent eye for lag, and I could see when something's wrong. I could see shimmering or, you know, any of the weird horizontal axis issues. But I knew it needed to go to Firebrand X, because he was the guy who, uh, he's the one who perfected the Framemeister profiles, and he's going to be able to tell right away how it looked and whether it was actually better or worse than the Framemeister. So I boxed everything up and sent it to Firebrand X, and at the moment he's about halfway through reviewing it. Um, he's going to have a page in his site, I'm sure he's going to post all the usual details that he does, but just a very brief synopsis of where he's at is basically the DVD upscaler was designed for video, not for gaming. So he's still trying to figure out the best tweaks you can do and how to do them, but at the moment it's looking like it might not give as sharp a picture as the Framemeister. He's still going to tweak it and see where we're at, and there's still no uh, definitive this is better or this is better uh, answer. Um, and at the end of the day, I still really think 75% of the issue is your TV. You know, what resolution is your TV? How does the scaler work um, when upscaling different resolutions? Can it accept off-timing resolutions? It's how much lag on each input. So it's still all going to come down to your TV, but which scaler for that TV is still up in the air, and that's hopefully what, you know, 
within a reasonable period of time, I'd be able to give a good recommendation. Um, but I'll post in links to his site as soon as it's up, and I'm sure I'll talk about it again on the podcast as soon as we cut, get any further on it. Um, but next up, I actually asked if he would do an interview with us about kind of um, how we got into this and how his profiles work and what the difference is. And for anybody watching on YouTube, uh, as he's talking, there's actually video of his 4X and 5X um, patches for the FrameMeister. So uh, I think his his patches are really the things that, that set the FrameMeister apart so far with everything else, and that you don't have to sit in front of your TV and tweak stuff for an hour. You just download his zip file, take the patches for whichever console you want, stick it on a micro SD, and then, so you're playing Genesis, grab your D, uh, your FrameMeister remote, set it to Genesis 5X, and you're done. So it's a pretty big deal, and it, uh, it made a huge difference for a lot of people trying to use the FrameMeister. So I'm really happy that he was able to get on and talk about it, and uh, it's not long at all, so I suggest everybody give it a listen. And uh, um, any questions or comments, obviously, you know, always love to see those. Uh, and hopefully next week we'll have more of an answer for you. So I uh, hope you enjoy listening to Firebrand X. Hey, this is Firebrand X. I've been a retro gaming fan for many years now. Although I started gaming with the Atari 2600, it wasn't until I got the NES for my 14th birthday in 1988 that I became a video game fanatic. I also own current generation systems like the PS4 and I game on the PC as well. But for my money, it doesn't get any better than when I load up my favorite games from the 80s and 90s. Early last year, I purchased the XRGB Mini FrameMeister after reading positive reviews about it. Since then, I've tried to learn as much as I can about the nuances and abilities of the FrameMeister, and ultimately started a webpage based on my work, which is over at www.firebrandx.com slash framemeisterprofiles.html. So how I got involved with the FrameMeister was my decades-long wish to reach the cleanest possible picture quality out of my old consoles. For a while I was obsessed with emulators and their digitally perfect pixels, but I never was 100% satisfied due to their instability and inaccuracies. If it wasn't certain games not working right, it was the occasional hiccup in the frame rate, or just crackling sound. There just was always something that made me wish I could combine the real hardware with the clean picture of the emulator onto my HDTV. That's when I started reading up on using RGB cables and upscalers to improve the real hardware experience on a modern flat panel display. I learned about things like lag and how some displays do a terrible job of internal scaling, so I knew going into this project that I need something that scaled directly to my Sony's 1080p resolution. Well, it became quite obvious the FrameMeister was the clear top choice for my endeavors. So after buying one and getting all the cables I needed to run my old consoles in RGB, it wasn't long before I was obsessively tweaking various settings to improve the picture quality. First thing I read about online was how the autofocus feature could be turned off and then you could manually adjust the horizontal and vertical focus to your liking. Since I love sharp pixels on 240p consoles like the NES, SNES, and Genesis, I found setting the H focus to 4 and the V focus to 7 gave me the sharpest possible picture without introducing visual artifacts. So unfortunately these sharp focus settings revealed that most of the picture modes offered by the FrameMeister were sacrificing pixel uniformity in favor of sizing the image to a desired dimension like say filling the screen for example. 
This is bad because it made random lines of graphics taller than others, and that in turn results in scrolling artifacts. Scrolling, of course, being when a game pans graphics across the screen. However, the smart picture modes of 1x and 2x were perfectly uniform on the vertical axis, and this made scrolling look liquid smooth in any direction. The downsides were that 1x is just a very small image on the screen, and while 2x is a lot larger, it often appeared too wide horizontally in 1080p mode. So that's when I got the idea to start experimenting with the FrameMeister's zoom functions, see if I could create integer scaled image settings on the vertical axis that also had the correct aspect ratio. It took a lot of guesswork, but eventually I arrived at zoom settings that appeared to show an image that was a perfect 4x scale integer of the original console's 240p resolution. As a bonus, the zoom width function made it easy to set the horizontal width to mimic a 4-3 aspect ratio. So now I had everything I wanted when it came to a 4x scaled image on my 1080p display. We have sharply focused pixels without artifacts, uniform pixels to retain liquid scrolling, and aspect corrections so that everything doesn't look too wide or too skinny. Then I wanted to see if it were possible to do the same thing at 5x scale. Now keep in mind that 5 times 240 equals 1200, and since this is more than the 1080p lines on a typical HD display, I'd end up with a small portion of the top and bottom of the image being cut off from view. As it turns out, this cropping of the image would be very similar to what CRT displays often did as well. So for many games, this cropped image is the same as you would have seen back when they were new. An example would be the NES, where even most emulators offer a feature to crop the top and bottom portions of the screen like this. The SNES and Genesis were even less affected by 5x scale cropping because they only have 224 vertical lines instead of 240. For these guys, you only lose four lines of graphics each from the top and bottom of the screen at 5x scale. As luck would have it, the FrameMeister zoom functions did offer the ability for scaling pretty much as large as you wanted past the borders of the display. So I developed 5x scale settings, and these became quite popular for use with the 224p consoles. Thankfully, MyComSoft released a firmware update shortly after I started my work that allowed for sharing and downloading of profile settings via the microSD card on the back of the unit. As I got to sharing my work online, users would report back how it looks from their end, and I'd learned there were certain issues that had to be dealt with. For example, whether or not the zoom function is turned on isn't saved in the profile data, so I'd have to include instructions for users to make sure their zoom function is turned on in order for the profiles to work properly. Then we'd also find out that one brand of display might not center an image the same way another display does, and I have to instruct users to make minor adjustments to the zoom H position and zoom V position settings in order to center the image to their liking. Now the FrameMeister scanline feature is a bit of a mixed bag for 1080p. First and foremost, the image really needs to be scaled to an integer of the source resolution where the scanlines won't line up properly. What's worse is the recent firmware update of 2.03 seems to have messed with scanline behavior to where now they will only line up correctly at zoom settings equal to Smart 2x mode, vertically speaking. So if you really love scanlines, you don't have a lot of options for 1080p on the FrameMeister. The only other alternative is to output at 720p, but then you lose a lot of your sharpness on 1080p displays, and you might even introduce extra lag by having the display scale the 720p image to 1080p. 
What's been often suggested on the forums is that it would be nice if MyComSoft added a scanline overlay feature. This is where you could actually make your own scanline image and put it on the micro SD card so the FrameMeister could assign it to your profile. Until this happens, we'll have to make do with the limited controls currently available. Okay, so again, if you're interested in uh, FrameMeister profiles to try out some integer scaled images on your display, uh, feel free to visit my website, which once again is www.firebrandx.com slash framemeisterprofiles.html. Thanks for having me, Bob, and best wishes to all.